So if you, if you look at the psychology of, of swear words, of, of bad words, you know, um, it's associated, now generally, it's associated with um, excrement from the body. You know? Like, we look at different words. You know? Like, if you say bloody hell, you know? um, a snot-nosed kid. You know? um, if you ever call somebody a stool head, you know, you know what a stool head is? Um, like a stool head, you know? your stool head. You know? There are other also very stronger words we can use related to male and female um, reproductive body parts, but we won't go into that because it's a PG class. You know? When I gave this class in bits, I was able to say these words, you know? and they were like, yeah, we use it every day, no issue. <laughs> um, so, but I think we know what we're talking about. Maybe some of us know very well what I'm talking about also. You know? um, so if you look at these words, they relate to excreta from the body or um, other parts of the body which these substances emanate from, right? Um, so like, like, like stool, you know, you can call somebody a defecation hole, you know, like that. Um, because, see, these um, substances which are expelled from the body, they're associated with dirt, unclean, contamination. It's that means by which the body uses it, um, the orifices are used to take out toxins from the bodies pathogens, bacteria, no? Like, when you eat something, I mean, a byproduct is stool, it's a waste of the body, you know? Nobody here eats so that they can pass stool, you know? It doesn't make sense, no? But these are negative things of the body which are important, but they dirty things, they lower things. And so we use these words that describe these things because they have they trigger strong negative emotional responses. We use them to belittle people. Um, we use them as weapons, you know? like throwing stool on somebody. You know? um, so we use them to embarrass other people. Um, we use them as a vent for repressed emotions. Um, if somebody hurts me, I can use these words to hurt them back because words can cut like a knife. Yeah? leave emotional, psychological scarring that you can't see externally. You know? Just because nobody ties a bandage over your head when you're scarred emotionally, doesn't mean your pain is not real. Doesn't mean it's not tangible. Doesn't mean you don't have internal scarring. You know? So these words like, like stool head, you know? yeah. we, we can use it as a weapon. You know? um, associated with, with disease, with impurity, with imperfections. You know? I'll give another example. Male bovine excrement, right? Um, it's a swear word, right? Male bovine excrement. Like, what is male bovine? What is a male bovine? A bull, right? So bull, right? Excrement is a byproduct of the body. Stool, right? So bull stool, no? Like, which is a, it's a, it's a swear word, no? You, you can say, um, stop doing this, you know? Right? We're getting the point? Okay. Um, so we use these words to insult others, you know? um, to belittle others. Um, sometimes we can also use these words with friends, um, like in a friendly way, you know? Because that's how Kali Yuga is going now. This is how we speak, you know? 
degraded like this, no? Speaking about excrement of the body and thinking it's cool, it's cool, it's civilized, you know? Um, but it's not a nice way to use diction, no? Because words are weapons, no? Also, it's a reflection of our mind that if this is the way we express our emotions and feelings and deal with other human beings or stressing situations, then this is the quality of our um, internal reflection, you know, which is finding manifestation through words, which is interesting. You know? um, and then there's the F-bomb, which I'm not going to speak about in this class because um, there's a PG rating on that. Um, that we'll speak about another time um, when the kids are not around. <laughs> and then there are uplifting words. So we've gone over bad words, right? Bad words hurt people, bring them down. Um, so they're like critical words, um, saying negative things, and bad words as in swearing words and all of that we discussed so far. Thus far, is everybody clear? Are we all clear and happy, no? So then there's uplifting words, right? And so, um, a few years back, like maybe 10 or 15 years back, um, a Japanese scientist conducted an experiment where he took three beakers of water. And in one beaker, he said only pleasant words, like, I love you, thank you, um, uplifting words, huh? I care about you. That was one beaker. He did that for 30 days. Second beaker, beaker number two, he didn't say anything. Third beaker was beaker number three, obviously. Um, and he said only bad words. I hate you, go to hell, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he did that for 30 days in a row, five minutes a day, right? And then he put the beakers away. And at the end of 30 days, he, they tested the water, right? So beaker one that had only positive uplifting words, that obviously over time fermentation takes place, right? And so when um, they were smelling the fermentation, it was, it was very sweet, it was a very pleasant aroma, right? Um, beaker two, where nothing was said, like they could see like um, some fermentation took place, but there wasn't any residual smell. It was fairly neutral, no? Because nothing was said to it. And the third beaker, the one that they were saying profanity and bad words to, fermentation also took place. Also, discoloration of the water took place. It became very murky. Um, it had like very negative qualities to it. And when they were smelling it, it was smelling like harsh alcohol. If you smelled like apple cider vinegar, it had that biting smell to it. You know? And so, um, Mr. Um, I forgot his name. The scientist, the scientist man, he, um, he could conclude by his experiment that the words that we emanate, the words that utter out of our mouths, that emanate from our mouths, affect the environment around us, but also affects us as human beings, no? Because what is the percentage of makeup of water within the human body? For a child, it's 70%. For a grown adult, it's 65%. And so he took this water and he put it under a microscope. Um, and so we'll play, I hope you'll be able to see this video. Um, if not, I'll just tell you what they saw. No? Um, and we'll discuss it after this video plays. No? So basically you can see that um, when different words were said, it caused a different 
um, molecular structural change to the, the, the actual molecule um, of the water, you know? Um, when prayers and love and appreciation was shown, um, it shows great symmetry, very beautiful designs were created. But look at what happened when, like before prayer, or when you say negative things, like you make me sick, it almost looks like cancerous, no? Um, and so it said that the tongue is like a rudder, no? And do you understand the analogy, the tongue is like a rudder? Do you know what a rudder is? It's at the back of the boat, no? So, of, um, how important is the rudder in the ship? Very important. How big is the rudder in the ship? Tiny, comparatively, right? So this is the rudder, no? At the back of the ship, that little metal piece there in the back is the rudder of the ship, right? Now, if you look at the size of the rudder, is it very big? It's not big at all. But what an important role the rudder has, no? So similarly, the tongue is like a rudder of the body, no? And the body is a vehicle, no? It's like a ship in one sense, it's a vessel. And so this little piece of flesh, no? The rudder is used when you turn the wheel of the ship that little piece in the back steers the ship. So when the rudder is out of control, the ship is out of control. It can hit an iceberg, it can crash, it can go around in circles, no? So the tongue is like that, no? And the tongue that's uncontrolled, it's said that you can stab other people or you can stab yourself um, with a very cutting tongue. No? You can slit your own throat with your tongue, no? um, So like that, the tongue is like a rudder. If you want to control yourself, you have to control your tongue, no? Um, so we all want to uplift society, no? But first we have to uplift ourselves. And the tongue is like a rudder, and Prabhupada gives a wonderful analogy in a book called Nectar of Instruction, where he explains that there's a straight line within the body between the tongue, the belly, and the genitals. And if you can control the tongue, you'll control the belly, and you'll control the genitals, no? And in that way, um, you'll be able to control yourself, control the body, uplift yourself, and by uplifting yourself, you can uplift all of humanity. You know? Otherwise, then the blind will just lead the blind. The uncontrolled will try to control the uncontrollable. You know? um, and so like that, the next logical question is how to control the tongue. You know? So, this is the secret to spirituality is that See, the tongue is a material thing. But when you reverberate, when you use the tongue, or when you vibrate the tongue in relation to spiritual sound vibration, then that which is material becomes spiritualized. For example, after this class, we will eat not food, but prasad. We will eat God's mercy. That's what prasad means. And that activity which generally binds us is going to free us as a form of yoga as a form of bhakti yoga. Just by eating food offered to God, we're making spiritual advancement and we're engaging the tongue in God's service. No? Simply by eating. Can you imagine an easier process to make spiritual advancement? No? Just now we were all chanting the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. Again, taking that material tongue, 
using it to vibrate spiritual sound vibration, controlling that tongue, connecting it to God, and making the rudder of the body um, move towards a spiritual destination. No? And this is how you control yourself. This is how you control your, your mind especially. No? Arjuna explains in Bhagavad Gita that the mind, he says it's easier to control the wind, Krishna, than to control the mind. And this is mind control. You control the tongue by engaging it in spiritual activities, by what we're doing here today. You know? And you'll notice, whenever you don't engage the tongue in spiritual activity, first day it's okay, second day not so okay, third day then you really start feeling how the material energy is taking control of you, you know? starting to um, rape and seep into your consciousness and slowly, slowly taking you away from your higher self and bringing you down to your lower self, from the monsters that are rattling the cages of the heart and wanting to come out. And mantra not only locks the cage, but it destroys the monster. It revolutionizes the monster from a monster to an angel. No? Um, but without this, without controlling the tongue, even if we're trying to keep the cage shut, it'll break open, no? and we're defenseless, we're helpless. And the monsters of lust and hate and greed, um, animosity, um, selfishness, jealousy, they'll take over us. No? So this is what we're gonna focus today, how to control the tongue. No? And one way to control the tongue is, and the best way is mantra. No? Now, what does mantra mean? The actual word, mantra, what is the direct translation of it? Mantra, a Sanskrit word, can be broken down into two roots, man and tra. Man, meaning mind, tra derived from the, the root Sanskrit word, trayate, which literally means man, mind, trayate, liberation, emancipation, freedom, the mind's freedom, no? This is what mantra affords you, no? So, we're going to look at various benefits of mantra meditation. But before we look at that, before we look at the side benefits, I want to tell you the main reason of mantra meditation, the goal of mantra meditation. No? And the goal is? Eternal love of God. The goal is Sanatan Dharma. What is Sanatan Dharma? A way of life, um, but a way of spiritual life. It is who we really are. Eternal love of God, no? Sanatan, eternal. Dharma means? So many descriptions of Dharma, religiosity, your duty, all of things are correct, right? But also your intrinsic nature, no? So the intrinsic nature of water is liquidity. No? The intrinsic nature of sugar, James? Sweet. Will sugar ever stop being sweet? In the past it has been sweet, now it's sweet 10 billion years from now. It will perpetually be sweet. If it's something else, then it's not sugar. No? 
So our intrinsic nature, our Sanatan Dharma, our eternal intrinsic nature is to have a loving relationship with God. And this is what Maha Mantra gives you. No? Actually, it's not giving you anything. It's helping you remember Sanatan Dharma, who you are, that which you have forgotten, science of self-realization, revelation, um, epiphany. No? Um, Maha means greatest, greatest mantra. Within this mantra, all other mantras are there. No? Um, and so this is the primary reason we chant the Maha Mantra. It's the science of self-realization. It helps us understand who we are. No? And we're also going to look at the secondary benefits. But now remember, when we eat food, why do we eat food? To maintain the, to maintain the body, we need energy. No? And the byproduct is that we pass stool. No? Nobody eats to pass stool. No? So we'll also look at the byproducts of chanting this Maha Mantra. And the, the byproducts in, in themselves are so amazing and so great. But sometimes we can get bewildered and taken away or distracted by the byproducts. No? So this is why I'm stressing on this point, is that this is the goal of chanting the Maha Mantra, love of God. No? This is the crest jewel, um, the most important aspect. No? But we'll also look at the secondary aspects of it. No? So, in different yugas, how many yugas are there? Four yugas. What is the first yuga? Satya yuga. Also known as the? What age? Truthfulness, and what is it represented by a certain metal? The golden age, right? And in the golden age, how long did a human being live for? Okay, 100,000. And you had to meditate for how many thousand years? 60,000 years. No? And the mantra that was chanted then at Satya Yuga, what was the process of self-realization? Extreme tapasya, but the mantra that was chanted was? Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudeva, Satya Yuga. Next. Next yuga, method of self-realization, which has spilt over a little bit to this yuga also. Look at ISKCON, look at other, um, especially in South India, I noticed. Very elaborate, very beautiful. According to the Naradiya Pancharatrika, no? the science of deity worship, where Prana Pratista, the Lord himself, is invited into the deity form, not idol, the deity form. No? Um, and a method of self-realization. And Kali Yuga, um, the Iron Age, the age of quarrel and hypocrisy, where we live to 60 if we're lucky. No? Um, what is the method of self-realization? Mantra meditation. No? Um, and we will look at this, how the, the Maha Mantra destroys the demons within ourselves. Because remember, in Satya Yuga, demons were in other planets or other universes. No? In Treta Yuga, demons were on the same planet but in different um, countries. Dwarpa Yuga, in the same family. Kali Yuga, where are the demons? Within us. No? Dancing on our shoulders. No? The angel on one side, the, the devil on the other side. No?
Um, and so we're going to look at how the Maha Mantra, secondary thing, remember, secondary, how it destroys your karma, how it destroys the demons within the heart, um, how it takes you above the modes of material nature. No? And so it said, Harinama, Harinama, Harinama eva kevalam, Kalo nasteva, eva nasteva, eva nasteva, eva gatiranyata. No? That for deliverance in Kali Yuga, there is no other way, there is no other way, there is no other way except the chanting of the holy names. No? And when something is repeated once in the Vedas, we take it seriously. When it's repeated twice, there are no mistakes in the Veda. It's understood that this is pretty serious. When it's said three times, whenever something said three times, especially in the Veda, it's of critical, vital, paramount importance, no? pivotal to our existence. And so this is why it's so important. It's not some grammatical error. And we'll look at why, no? um, especially in Kali Yuga, because all other mantras are invested in this Maha Mantra. No? And this is this beautiful Maha Mantra. No? Um, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So nice to know what we're saying. No? Hare. What is Hare? Srimati Radharani. No? The female divinity of God. No? And Hare represents the, um, the pleasure potency of the Lord. Ladini Shakti. No? The pleasure that you feel right? when you do something spiritual. Hare. Krishna. What does Krishna mean? What, all attractive. No? Um, Rama. Aggressive of all bliss. No? So this is what we reciting when we're chanting the, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. Um, o energy of the Lord, um, O all attractive one, O reservoir of all bliss, please engage me in your loving service. No? And this is Sanatana Dharma, to have a relationship with God. And this is what the Maha Mantra affords you. No? Um, <clears throat> and this is the nature of the soul, Sat, Chit, and Ananda. No? And this is what the Maha Mantra affords you. Um, eternality, Sat, Chit, knowledge, and Ananda, ecstasy. No? This is what you get when you understand who you are. Um, and this is what the holy name affords you. Because these holy names are not some mundane sound vibration. No? That they are God Himself and His most beautiful consort that have come and descend on your tongue and dance on your tongue and enter your heart and slay the demons within your heart. No? So it's, it's no ordinary thing. No? Um, so it said that the eyes of the wise see through the ears. No? This is how you prepare your eyes to see God, through your ears. This is our process. So by receiving God through your ears, allow that sound vibration to purify your heart then one day you'll be able to see him through your eyes. Um, and this is our process. Um, it said, Nama Chintami Krishna Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha. No? That 
the name of Krishna is no one different from Krishna. He's transcendental. Rasa vigor, he's coming full of relationships, full of ras, full of what we are looking for, what we are yearning for. But that thing that we're looking in all the wrong places, no? Um, and so this is the right place to look because these words are alive. They are conscious. God is coming in his sound vibration. That Chaitanya, living force himself is coming, no? They, you've seen the power of material words. Now, can you imagine the potency of God himself invested in transcendental, transcendental spiritual above the three modes of material nature coming, be, be, being present before you? So it's no ordinary thing. No? Um, so I have one slide that's very important and one video to show. And then one slide afterwards that goes into the psychology of mantra. Um, we'll see how it destroys karma and how it destroys the proclivity to commit sin. This is so very important to understand. Um, and this will help us in our spiritual practice because it's important to understand why we're doing what we're doing. You know? um, see, mantra is the most precious jewel. I was going to tell a story about it, but I think I'm going to skip that for now. What we're going to do now is play a very short two-minute video explaining the process um, of, in Sanskrit, we'll say a samskara. A samskara is a mental impression. Interesting, we knew about these millions of years ago. Right? And now neuropsychology is saying we discovered this. No? We knew mil two million years ago, fourth chapter, um, text two. Krishna explains to Arjuna that I spoke the science to you and Vivashwan two million years ago. I remember you all have forgotten. No? Two million years ago, no? that the Vedas knew about all of this. They knew about a neural pathway. Neurons that fire together, wired together. Knew about these microscopical neurons which are coming together within the synapses of the brain. You know? um, so we'll play this very short video describing this, the samskara, the mental impression, how it causes a chain of addiction, how whatever you do, you become. It explains the, the neural pathway. Um, and we'll look at how mantra defeats the, or wires, retrains the brain, retrains the neural pathway. From, from a low taste, you get a higher taste, which is so scientific, no? So we'll look at that very briefly, and then we'll look at the psychology of mantra, no? So what we looked at is what we call in Sanskrit a samskara, a mental impression, no? Um, the neural pathway. So we're quickly going to look at how the maha mantra destroys sin, destroys your karma and destroys the proclivity to commit sin. In our last class, remember, we spoke about prize chitta, how you can perform various prescribed um, activities within the Veda to negate your bad karma, your sin, right? But then we gave the example of the elephant. Cleans itself, but then covers itself in dirt. So a lot of the times we do something, then we perform prize chitta, but still that proclivity to commit sin is still there, no? So we will look at we'll look at um, how this works, right? So say you perform a sinful activity, no? So the same is true for a pious activity also. It works in a similar way. No? You perform a sinful activity. 
So in this example, I'm going to give the example of intoxication. Uh, let's say the sinful activity you perform is drinking alcohol, right? You perform a sinful activity and two things happen. One is a manifest reaction, right? By manifest reaction, what I mean is that there's a direct reaction that takes place that you can see, right? Say you drink too much of alcohol and you get a hangover the next day. That's a direct action, no? Or you drink too much of alcohol and then you say unkind words to the people you love or strangers or whatever and you cause emotional trauma for yourself and for others. Again, a direct manifestation of the result of performing a sinful activity, right? So you perform the activity and first there's an unmanifest reaction. You don't see it immediately, but then it manifests. It becomes visible to you, right? Um, so that's one thing that happens, right? And then there's an unmanifest reaction, which you don't see immediately, but it's indirect suffering, right? So are we everybody following, following me thus far, right? So two things happen when you perform a sinful activity. One is there's two unmanifest reactions, right? One you see immediately as your direct emotional and physical suffering. I'll give you another example. You drink too much of alcohol, you get into your car, and you're arrested by the police, right? That's the unmanifest reaction. Unmanifest means it hasn't taken form yet, right? The unmanifest reaction becomes manifest, means that it has fructified, it has bare fruit. It's like a seed that has blossomed, right? So drinking, unmanifest, has manifested into the hangover, has manifested into being in jail, has manifested in so many ways. You know? And then the second thing that happens is there's an indirect suffering that you don't see. Okay? So we understand the first part, right? Everybody with me? Two things happen. One, we see, one, we don't see. Right? So now we're going to look at that which we don't see. Right? Sinful activity, drinking. Two unmanifest reactions take place. We'll call that the seed form. Right? Now, from the seed, two things happen. One which we have just discussed is the manifest reaction that you can see. Right? Um, for example, you drink a lot, you get a hangover the next day. That seed has blossomed, it has fructified. Right? The second thing that happens is, it's a more subtle thing. It's the neural pathway taking effect. Um, it's the neurons that are wiring together within the neural pathway. It's a samskara that has been created. What is called a sinful inclination. Or in psychology, we call it um, a psychological disposition to produce more sinful things, to, to do more sinful activities, right? So, now remember, this is unmanifest in the sense that you can't see it happening to you but it's causing like a demon in the head. Think of it like that, you know? And this sinful inclination or proclivity to perform sin forces you to perform that specific desire that you wanted to, do, that you wanted to perform. And in this case, it's the drinking, you know? So two things happen. The one, you can see the manifest reaction. The second thing is the unmanifest reaction taking place in the subtle energy of the mind, you know? That it causes a proclivity, a sinful desire within the heart which manifests within that 
activity, and this activity, that specific sinful desire is that action to drink. And what happens when you perform that action? You want to do it again, no? Because it's a vicious cycle that goes around in the same cycle that it repeats itself over and over, which is called the addiction cycle, no? Because that which you repeatedly do, you become, no? And if you don't break this addiction cycle, it breaks you. Because when you dance with the devil, you don't stop dancing when the music stops. You stop when he gets tired. And does the devil ever get tired? And addiction is like that, no? And so mantra allows you to kill your devil or to transform your devil into an angel, no? And it breaks the addiction cycle by giving you a higher taste that you give up your lower taste. So you retrain your brain, basically. You create new samskaras within your neural pathway. And this is just a secondary byproduct, no? That it destroys the seed, all that stored up karma that you have in seed form. It destroys all of that first. Secondly, it destroys the sinful inclination to perform sinful activities. Then it destroys your manifest karma, that which you're suffering with now. You know? So it destroys all these things, um, taking you out of your karmic cycle. You know? um, and rising you above the three modes of material nature. Why? Because this is spiritual. It's Sudha Sattva. Um, it's above the three modes of material nature. And it's breaking your karmic cycle. So you'll have no more bondage to this place that is not our home. You know? And this is mantra meditation. This is the science of self-realization. This is Sanatan Dharma. And to conclude, is that this is how you uplift yourself, by controlling the tongue. And we control the tongue by spiritual sound vibration. And then that way, when it's like we have an angel and a devil on our shoulder, no? And whatever you feed gets the strongest. And most of the time we're feeling we're feeding the devil, no? And you can hear it barking like a dog, no? And the dog gets louder and louder, and it never shuts up because we're feeding the dog. And the more you feed that devilish dog, the stronger it gets. And then it drowns out your angel. But understand, when you feed the angel the Maha Mantra, then you arm your angel with a shotgun. No? Then you can destroy your devil. No? And then it allows you to go from terrestrial, terrestrial to celestial. No? from earthly to otherworldly, no? to understand who you really are. Because you're not this body, and you're not the accumulated karma that's coming to you. No? Because this process, it, it doesn't kill your demon, but it changes lust to love. Selfishness into selflessness. And this is the nature of love. It is to give, and it is to realize who you truly are. And this is this beautiful Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, which descends from the spiritual realm and the Lord themselves, the energy and energetic in their personal loving divine form have come to dance on your tongue and in your heart and destroy the monsters and demons within ourselves and create a spiritual revolution and a revolution of mind and consciousness. You know? um, and, and this way, our tongue 
reverberates the spiritual sound vibrations because the song, the sound of the universe is a song. It's a love song. And this way, we dance to God's spiritual song. You know? We dance to God who is a DJ. You know? um, we dance to his bhakti beat. You know? And we are invited to our eternal home, which is an eternal perpetual party. And the Maha Mantra is our invitation. So this is what I, I humbly request for all of us to do um, today, is a practical exhibition of spirituality. Um, so very quickly, is, the, is, is anybody going to be chanting the Maha Mantra for the first time? Please raise your hand. Okay, welcome. Um, wonderful. So simple, three names. Um, 16 words, 32 syllables, all right? Um, so everybody gets um, Japa Mala, chanting meditation beads, and there's 109 beads, right? The 109 bead is the head bead, right? <clears throat> and so we don't count the head bead. So we'll be chanting on 108 beads, right? It said that the head beads rep represents, it represents Krishna, right? And the other 108 beads are the principal associates of God or the gopis in the spiritual world. Right? So we'll, this is called one round, to go one time around the, um, the meditation beads. Right? And so for different people, it takes a different time. Generally, it takes me like 10 minutes. No? Um, so we'll all chant together. You go at your own pace. It's very natural. Um, if you get stuck, this, the mantra is, is up here. I'll repeat it once, um, just so we can get a feel of it. Um, very simple. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Rama, Rama, Hare Hare. And so that's considered one bead, right? Generally, we don't use this finger when we're chanting. Um, it, it's the chastising finger, no? Generally, you chastise somebody with that, no? So generally, we don't, we don't touch with that. We don't chant with that finger. And we, we, we try to use our right hand because the right hand is meant for higher things. No? Um, so we hold the bead with um, the thumb and these two fingers here, like that. No? Um, and it said that also one of the reasons we do that is because um, on that part, on the center finger there, there's, there's a pressure point. And um, according to Ayurveda, it helps control the mind also. No? So whatever we can do to control the mind is useful. Right? And the more senses we get involved, the better. Which is why we use the sense of touch, which is why the beads are recommended. We also say the mantra loud enough so that you, you can hear it, but you don't want to disturb somebody else. So also the tongue is vibrating, but then you're also hearing. Right? So more senses are getting involved. And when you're hearing of God, obviously immediately you start to think of Him. No? Um, so as you chant one mantra, then you go to the next beat. So, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Then you go to the next beat and repeat like that, okay? Um, everybody okay with that? And so if you feel like you've been sitting for too long, that's okay, you can get up, um, you can stand. If you want to pace in the back, you can walk up about a little bit. And so we'll, we'll do this. Generally, it takes about 10 minutes. You go at your own pace and then... Once, you, once we're done, um, then we're done. No? Okay?
and then you can repeat every day. It's like taking a bath, no? Um, you just don't do it once, and then I'm done for the year. I hope you don't, I hope you're not doing that. Um, so it's like taking a bath, you do it daily, or twice, or twice, or many times, no? So, uh, everybody following? Okay, so we'll begin, we'll chant together, you go at your own pace, and um, enjoy it. Remember, God himself is descending in his holy name, right? This is Krishna avatar in Kali Yuga, no? Generally, we, we use a bead bag. Um, we put our beads in, you may see devotees having a bead bag. Um, so you put the beads in the bead bag, and then you stick that, that chastising pointer finger out. And so you he, you're holding it in the bead bag like that. Uh, many reasons are there. Um, mostly because, see, the beads are very sacred. They're your connection with God, no? So that thing that is sacred, you want to protect and um, keep safe from the world, no? So you can see my bead bag's a little dirty because otherwise my beads would be getting dirty like that, no? So many reasons are there. One of it is that um, it protects our beads. It's, it's something very precious for us, no? It's our connection with God, no? So that's one of the reasons, no? So I'm going to stop talking now and um, we're going to all chant together.